Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. So I just finished talking with Sarah Allen about her really fantastic new book, Shifting Stories, History, Gossip, and Lore in Narratives from Tang Dynasty China. This came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2014. And it's a book that I think is going to be of wide interest, both to readers and listeners um, of this podcast who are interested in Chinese literature, in the history of China, the history of the Tang Dynasty, the history of storytelling and tales of the strange within that context, but also for listeners and readers who perhaps don't have a pre-existing interest in or expertise in China, but who are interested in the history of the relationship between ideas of fact and fiction, of history and literature, of notions of authorship and textuality, and specifically um, of the non-human and the idea of things that talk and tell stories. So it's a really wide-ranging and really um, totally fascinating text. And what you'll hear us talk about over the course of the conversation are both some of the major arguments and major points that Sarah's making in these chapters, but also some of the many, 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 many really awesome stories that she describes and translates for us in the course of the analysis. So it was a lot of fun to talk with her about this. It was a lot of fun to read through these stories, and it was a really enlightening book as well. So thanks very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Sarah Allen about her new book, Shifting Stories. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. Sarah, thanks for making time to talk with me today, and thanks for a super fascinating book. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks very much, Carla. Thanks for having me. So, Sarah, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field you work in, and specifically, how did you come to work in Chinese literature and to work on the Tang Dynasty in particular? Um, well, I would say that getting into the field in general was um, in many ways serendipitous. I uh, started Chinese to fulfill a college language requirement and sort of thought, oh, that will be you know, more interesting than, than uh, or more, more different than, than Spanish or French. Um, I, you know, having really no idea what I was getting myself into, um, but I did stick with it and um, really enjoyed literary Chinese as a language when I started that. Um, I think, you know, probably in part because I wasn't expected to try to speak it. It was, you know, sort of nicely uh, there on the page. Um, um, but, you know, the elegance and the conciseness of the language really appealed to me and sort of the, the problem-solving aspect of um, realizing that these, um, you know, um, texts or words that were by no means transparent to me were nonetheless, um, you know, the product of, of someone, someone speaking, someone trying to say something. Um, and so, um, that, um, the, it, it, in some ways, a, a sort of a, in, the intellectual deciphering process, um, I, I think, um, got me interested in, um, 
in um, literary Chinese or classical Chinese language uh, texts in general. Um, and you know, in the in the Tang in particular, um, I mean, I'm not sure if it was the the Tang as a period so much as you know, I'd always enjoyed reading stories, and so was sort of drawn to um, this. Um, you know, as, as I started reading initially in translation, um, Tang tales, I was sort of, um, you know, I, I was just interested in them. I liked the material. Mm-hmm. So was that uh, pretty much what brought you to uh, the focus on Tang tales in particular? So we're, um, for listeners, the book itself, and you'll hear much more about this over the next hour, focuses on the literature of tales um, in the 8th and the 9th centuries. So Sarah, was it a kind of um, inherent just interest and love for the these stories, these tales that brought you to it? And if um, in either case, how did you come to decide to write a book about these? Yeah, I think, you know, um, why this material in particular, um, first and foremost, um, you know, it, that just that it is such fun and rich material to, to read. And so, you know, I, I enjoyed reading it. Um, but I think also, you know, the more I did read, the clearer it was to me that sort of the standard story that that's told about these tales that that is you know to a large extent based on just just a few select tales was was really not um, adequate to, um, in explaining the material as I as I saw it um, and so I started reading even more um, but yeah I would definitely say that the book itself was really material driven rather than idea driven you know it was less that I had a theory that I wanted to test or prove than that I was intrigued by by the texts and, you know, the disconnect between what I had read and learned about them and then what I saw in the, in the material itself and the tales themselves. And so um, I, I, you know, was very much motivated by, um, you know, just the, the desire to answer the question, well, you know, what is this material? What's, where does it come from? Um, why has it been preserved more than kind of coming to it with an, with an idea that, uh, about it that I wanted to explore? Right. And one of the really wonderful things about the book, I think, is how much you're giving us in the book translations from introductions to and excerpts from the tales themselves. So we're talking about some really fascinating literature on, um, you know, court intrigue on fox women on ghosts on weddings the at which you know the guests are historical figures or mythological figures there's all kinds of riddling tales in here there are uh, objects that talk so it's inherently a really fascinating set of materials and one of the yeah one of the things i really loved about the book was how much um the translations and descriptions of the tales really bring us into and give us a sense of the texture of these materials no, thanks. Yeah, no. I mean, you're right. You're right. Just the the sheer richness of of what's out there, I think, is is just um, uh, well, just amazing. I mean, really, you know, interest. Absolutely. Work with. So this is a project that started off at least on in some form, right, in some way, as a dissertation that then um, transformed into the book that we see here. So can you talk a little bit about that process? Were there any kind of major changes from dissertation to book or, you know, in any other form, um, significant, if not major changes, either in how you were shaping and writing the book or in how you were conceptualizing the project as a whole? Um, yeah, I would say that the book is really um, substantially different from the dissertation, um, in part just because the dissertation was based on a much more limited set of material in which 
you know, I would say I, I started working towards some of the ideas that got developed more in the book, um, but hadn't, you know, hadn't really, I, I think, come to a lot of the um, the understanding that that I developed um, in the course of writing the book, um, and and so um, I think that the dissertation is structured just much more on the the idea of. Um, well, of variation, and that there's, you know, that 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 there's a lot of fluidity in this material, sort of both on a textual level and a, uh, um, a um, sort of a narrative level that you have um, different stories um, told in different ways, which um, which 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 comes into the which very much um, informs the book that, you know, the, the notion of these these different, um, the, the retelling of stories is, is a big part of the book itself. But I think I didn't have um, as, again, you know, since it was the, um, based on such a m- much more limited set of materials, I didn't yet have you know, as um, clear a concept of really um, what was in there um, in in terms of in the surviving corpus and um, and you know how things how things um, related to each other so you know I would say that you know, much most of what's in the book wasn't in the in the dissertation there's um, one chapter of the dissertation that becomes a couple of chapters in the book um, um, and conversely much of what's in the dissertation didn't get into the book um, in terms of like looking much more closely at sort of um, just uh, textual variables like you know, word by word variance and the significance of that, or um, looking at in the dissertation, I also look at um, um, a song, much more at Song Dynasty sort of uh, uh, selections from from the Tang material and, and what happens to it in the in, um, in the song and, and how Song readers seem to have used it. So um, you know that stuff that. Um, Maybe I'll get back to it someday, but um, you know, didn't didn't find a place in in the book as it was finally developed. So the book itself starts with an introduction that brings us into the story. So as you um, tell us in the introduction, there was a fad for telling and collecting stories about remarkable events in ninth century China. Now the book explores these the kind of large scale and smaller scale variations in the tellings and retellings of the tales that you're looking at, in the way a given set of events, as you put it in the introduction, or a given narrative formula, and we'll talk about both of those kind of instantiations of a tale, right, as a retelling of events or a telling of a, according to a particular formula, formula, um, how these events or formula were used in different tales, both in tales that circulated individually and those that circulated in collections. And the introduction really, um, I think, very nicely lays out the importance of understanding the difference between kind of individual versus collective circulation of these tales. Now, you talk in the introduction about the importance of one of these collections. This is a late 10th century compendium, the Taiping Guangji. So can you maybe um, start us off by talking a little bit about that? Um, for listeners who don't maybe don't know anything about this literature, right, what is the Taiping Guangji and what's the significance of that for the larger story that you're going to be telling um, in this book? Oh, well, uh, Taiping Guangji was, it's an imperially sponsored compilation of of sort of all of anecdotal material um, from uh, well, f- from all periods up until the um, time when it was com- compiled, which was in the 
um, in the late late 10th century in the um, in the 980s, and it you know what it does is it um, organizes topically. Um, all sorts of information about um, how to say it about you know about strange stuff that doesn't have a place in in um, other kind of more canonical compilations. So it was put together um, in, in conjunction with um, with the. Um, Yinhua, which is sort of belletristic writing um, poetry and uh, more formal essays, um, and then also the Taiping Yulan, which is um, information that's supposed to be particularly useful to the emperor in his ruling. Um, and then um, Taiping Guangji became the, the repository for other stuff. Um, and most of this other stuff is, um, is anecdotal material about either... Um, Kind of this, the, the occult, strange things that can happen. Um, that the you know the the, the uh, uh, um, contiguous worlds that that are always uh, around the human world, but that we don't always have access to, but that we that we might suddenly have access to. So you know things like um, ghosts and gods and um, and immortals and. Uh, um, things that can can transform themselves, um, and also you know the the um, the powers of Taoist or um, Buddhist monks and wonder workers, or um, the you know the sort of the things that have to do with um, or not maybe I should say that don't strictly have to do with our own our own human world. Um, and so Taiping Guangxi, you know, over the, the centuries, um, you know, starting maybe in the uh, um, third or fourth century um, the, and up until, well, you know, continuing throughout the, the um, imperial period, but um, in terms of um, what Taiping Guangxi itself collects, um, um, certainly up through the, the five dynasties and early Song, um, that these are these are collections of materials that people um, you know pe- people wrote down anecdotes that they heard about this material um, collected them in some cases um, you know f- for um, clearly uh, in order to um, uh, sort of for for philosophical reasons in this in the sense of or, or religious reasons to to demonstrate that these these you know strange things actually happened um, that, that this was that that, that um, you know to present this stuff as evidence um, of either you know the occult in general or of the 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 power of Buddhist think, um, teachings or the power of um, of Taoist teaching is in Taoist belief, um, or on the other hand, sometimes um, you know some 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 people seem to collect this stuff just you know purely out of interest, um, not necessarily with the um, out of a d- desire to um, to proselytize um, to make a point in the same way, but um, but simply because it was interesting. And what Typing Guangji does is it sif- shifts through what the editors of Typing Guangji did is to, to sh- um, sift through um, you know volumes and volumes and volumes of the stuff accumulated over centuries and to organize it according to um, different categories. So you know all of the things about um, 
water gods would go into one chapter, all of the things about Buddhist monks would go, or not just one chapter, you know, a set of chapters, um, all of the things about foxes that um, can take on human guise would go into, you know, in, in one place within the anthology. So it sort of becomes, you know, in a, in a sense, an anthology, or sorry, an encyclopedia um, of information, but an encyclopedia that doesn't compile information so much as um, reiterate the the or um, reinscribe the information that has been collected um, by by previous writers. Great, and this is actually um, a source of um, many of some of the tales that you're going to go on to explore later on in the book. Right. Yeah. So that's that's worth saying actually that it's um, so a lot of the material that I deal with um, was is not preserved independently um, and becomes. Um, part of, um, in, in, you know, we have it only because Taiping Guangji um, preserved it, and it seems, you know, in many cases probably didn't preserve it fully, but um, more than any other sources did. Great. And so what we're going to wind up, uh, thank you so much. So what we're going to wind up um, hearing more about and talking more about um, and reading more about um, as we get further in the book um, is a, a kind of argument that fidelity to an original source wasn't really an important part of what was going on for most of this story anyway. So it's actually, you know, as we think about the process of um, kind of collection and transformation that brings these Tang tales to the Taiping Guangji and then that brings you to the Taiping Guangji as a way of accessing it, it actually becomes, the, the process of accessing the tales through this collection becomes a really interesting part of um, one of the larger arguments of the book and I think a, a way that works really, really well. So the once we move from the introduction to the first chapter, we move into um, the sort of world of telling stories. So the first chapter looks at the importance of situating Tang tales in the context of social story exchange among elite men. Now, written tales and the practice of writing grew up, as you um, say, as you tell us about in this first chapter, out of gossip and hearsay that circulated among these elite men. So as a way to bring us into this part of the book, um, can you talk a little bit about this notion of gossip and hearsay um, as it animates what's happening here? What for you is really important for us to understand about gossip and hearsay in order for us to understand what's happening um, in this chapter of the book? Well, I think that the... um you know, this has a lot to do with sort of how the um, tales, this, this material has been um, treated in earlier scholarship, which has um, very much focused on a small subset of of um, really sort of the most artfully written tales and um, and how they uh, and, and treated them as um, sort of authored works. Um, an analogous to fictional stories, um, and my, um, you know, what what I think is um, well, it became clear to me as I read more and more of this material is that that that's um, not the full story here, um, and be, that that the material seems much more to come out of a. Uh, a body of 
of um, of hearsay and lore and gossip that was circulating, uh, well, initially orally, that you know people would, and, and, and so these these are the stories of of the the educated elite men who are um, well, you know, for one thing, have the ability to to write these these things down, but who are sort of um, you know who have who have been um, brought up to to um, to be literate and um, and you know many of whom um, participate in or, or aspire to participate in the the um, you know the, you know the, the government bureaucracy um, and but that that these are in in many cases the you know it seems to be the stories that they would tell tell each other on their um, in their time off that um, you know Tang um, elite men. Uh, um, you know, especially those in office spent a lot of time traveling around, um, and so you know they would they would congregate at inns. Um, they they would go periodically back to the um, the capital city of Chang'an, um, where they would meet again with with uh, old friends um, and you know others in uh, others in their social circles. Um, and it you know it seems that uh, one of the things that they would spend a lot of time doing would be just you know telling each other stories, entertaining each other. Um, in in some cases, competing to sort of um, tell 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 the most interesting or the best or the most shocking story. Um, and, you know, so they seem to have told stories about a variety of things. Um, and, you know, one aspect of that, not surprisingly, would have been, you know, gossip about their fellows. Did you hear that, um, you know, that the, the so-and-so, that, the, you know, Lee got sacked um, by the emperor because, um, because the emperor was angry for how he how he reprimanded him um you know did you hear that um that wang was um you know he he, he met a, a beautiful woman the other day um but it turned out that she was in fact a turtle um and you know the, 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 these are sort of the the um you know the kinds of in the sense of being gossip you know it's information about um the people that you know about the, the people within their community, people that they would have either whether they knew them directly or whether you know, oh, as everybody's heard of the the emperor's current favorite minister. You know, I've never met him, but but this is the latest gossip about him. Um, and so you know, I, and I, I see their the written tales that we have that survive today is very much a um, a product of that kind of. Um, storytelling practice, um, a product that, you know, in its written version, um, many of them are probably very, very different from, uh, you know, that gossip as it would have been exchanged, you know, late one night at the inn um, on the on the road to um, to um, to Loyang or something like that. But that the um, that fundamentally um, the the written material that we have today kind of grows out of this social exchange of of stories, um, many of them again stories that would have um, um, you know, been about members of of the same community that the storytellers themselves uh, participated in. Awesome, thank you so much. And the chapter um, makes the point, I think, really importantly and really well, as we were talking a little bit about before, that fidelity to the source of the tale was not really particularly important here, right? Instead, the tales became a kind of origin point for men to develop their own tales. And the book talks about the importance of understanding this, or in the chapter, um, 
chapter one in the introduction in particular, talk about the importance of understanding this in the context of the relationship between tales and fiction. Um, so this becomes really important to understand. And so listeners with a particular interest in how to understand what's happening in these tales within a larger um, sort of framework of discussions and debates over fiction and historicity might find um, special or material of special interest in chapter one and indeed in chapter two. So chapter two kind of um, explores some of these same issues, but by looking at tales that relate gossip about public figures. So this chapter looks specifically about um, tales about Tang emperors, rulers, high officials who were interesting um, to the people who would have been telling these tales, right? And these tales, as you show, become vehicles for the discussion and debate of popular events. Now, one of the really th- really interesting things for me that's happening in this chapter is the way you're relating, again, these tales to a larger frame of how we understand history, um, who gets to write history, how history is produced, what counts as history, and where um, we can look to find um, historical retellings of events. So for you, um, I just kind of want to open this up and and hit the ball back to you. What for you is um, the most important uh, aspect of how we understand these stories in chapter two in terms of how we understand how to relate what's going on in these tales to history? Um, Well, I think that you know, one one thing that's important here is, you know, realizing that many of these uh, these stories or these these written tales again that we have um, that we as um, as twenty first century readers or really you know as post tongue readers um, read as um, sort of as. Um, narratives in their own right. I mean, narratives whose interest lies in the fact that in, in, in the in the narrative in the in the story that they're telling, um, and to realize that um, many of these these stories really are about traceable historical figures, and um, therefore that what um, and this, you know ties very closely again to the notion of these stories as as um, as gossip is that what these you know what these stories very much are trying we're trying to do in their time perhaps is to help readers understand um, recent events um, and form opinions about them so that they're um, they're about about again you know my example of of you know so and so who was recently sacked by the emperor um, who was offended by you know how who he offended somehow that. The, 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 the stories then um, give us a context for understanding um, what has happened um, well give readers at the time a context for understanding you know um, events happening around them that they may may have imperfect access to so you know if we if, if we think about um, the the, the way that information ab- about you know what's happening in the central government or what you know what's happening in in government anyway and you know that, as you said that's this is sort of what I focus on in this particular chapter um, that you know people's um, people's access to to that information could conceivably you know in many cases would have been quite um, 
quite limited, but at the same time, you know, it would be it would be information that they would you know be of keen interest to them, um, and that the the way that um, that these these tales function there then is in um, you know that writers are really offering evaluations of recent events and of public figures and and trying to influence um, their readers' understanding of these events and these figures um, and you know and I think that the you know in terms of our reading of history what it does is to you know our, our reading of history in the present um, what it does is to really remind us that when we are looking at um, the, the way that a set of historical events or a historical personage is presented in sort of canonical sources, that that is, um, you know, that, that that's one version of how a particular person was um, was perceived, and that that there may have been other opinions. So not to say that like the, you know, the, the, the canonical sources are wrong necessarily, but that this kind of assessment of personality and assessment of, of a person's um, impact or of the significance of a certain event event would have been something that at the time was, was very hotly contested and, you know, different, um, different perspectives would give you different um, or people standing in different perspectives would, would have very different interpretations of, um, a certain, you know, personality or a, a certain um, sequence of events, um, and it might be, um, you know, that o- only one of those sort of wins out at the end and becomes the the version that gets inscribed in history. Um, and I think, you know, so just as if we're looking at political events today, you know, people on different sides of the political spectrum have very, very different evaluations of, you know, of any number of, of different um, political figures or events. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, understanding, again, the, the this material as a whole, that the um, recognizing this link to historical people is very important because it really reframes the way that we have to look at these stories, that it's not just, you know, a um, made-up entertainment about a, uh, about a um, uh, you know, a, a figure who's given a certain name, but rather that, that these stories are imputing, you know, certain, certain actions and certain feelings and certain thoughts to specific historical people. Which doesn't mean that the stories themselves might not be, all, <laughs> in fact, be made up, both made up and entertaining, but that they're not, that their original context um, is much, much broader because of that, that link to a historical person. Thank you so much. And again, um, for listeners who are particularly interested in history, right, and sort of how we think about and how we practice history, I think this chapter is especially interesting because it really does um, help transform what we can think of as the archive of documentary traces for understanding a historical event by really expanding into a kind of text and a kind of tale that may not obviously seem to be um, historical, right? And in, in the same way that readers um, expect or understand. And you're really showing here that these tales led them or led readers to understand events in a particular way, created the knowledge about historical events. And they did so, as you've talked about, right, in a number of different ways, like either by countering prevailing versions of events, by filling gaps um, in historical knowledge. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on here and a lot of fabulous stories and tales that we won't have time to get into, but that 
Bell Mark um, for listeners. So there's a lot of really, really cool descriptions and very interesting and intricate readings of um, tales um, that fit um, these particular categories that you're talking about. So as we move into chapters three and four, we move into a very really fascinating discussion of a particular situation that shaped many of the tales that you're talking about. And this is a situation in which there's a lone male traveler. He encounters a stranger that has some sort of secret. So chapter three introduces what you call this adventure formula that makes up these tales of strange encounters. So at its most basic level, and I'll just kind of describe this formula um, for listeners so that we can kind of talk about some of the details. At its most basic level, there are two actors, though there could be much more. There's a human traveler, which is often a man, and there's a stranger, and there's four central actions. The first action um, is the traveler's encounter with the stranger. Then you have the traveler's interaction with the stranger. Then you have a parting from the stranger, and then there's a revelation that the stranger was not what she or he had seemed. Often the stranger is a she, but not always. Okay, so the chapter takes us into um, a bunch of really awesome tales um, that do a couple of different things. A group of the tales illustrate the kind of range of this formal model. So there's this one model um, that I've just described, but there's a lot of different ways that that can be used in these tales. And the chapter also takes us into five tales that kind of tweak to this model in order to explore often assumptions between the barrier between human and non-human, right? Between like the traveler who's often a human and the stranger who's often either a non-human or like oddly human in some way. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to basically just kind of open this up. Um, for you, in the in the range of kinds of um, or in the range of versions of these tales that follow this kind of model, do you have a particular favorite? Um, and if you do, or if there's one that strikes you that's particularly interesting or important, um, could you introduce it for listeners and kind of maybe talk about? Um, use it to maybe talk a little bit about the importance of this adventure model for how we understand tales in this part of the book. Um, hmm. There's lots, right? There's like, um, I mean, there's a bunch at the end that kind of are these variations that you talk about Miss Ren, the miraculous marriage at Dongting, the Li Hua tale, Shen Tu Chang, Sun Ke. Are there any in particular that you find um, especially engaging that you'd want to maybe um, open up and introduce for listeners? It's, I mean, they, <laughs> you know, they all have their, um, their great points, I would say, um, that I, I think that what is, um, um, maybe because, um, you know, some of them are better known than the others, I'll, I'll turn to, to some that are less, or, or one that's a little less well known. Um, but, you know, I think that what this, sort of this, um, model for a um, of, of interaction with a stranger does is really to, to serve as a way of exploring for many um, um, for, for, you know for, for the for the reader sort of what the um, what the boundary between you know human and non-human is and what the um, you know what what the relationship between 
human and non-human should be. And so, you know, in the, the very simplest of these stories, um, you kind of have, well, you know, so the sort of the example that I start out with is um, that, you know, someone's walking along at night in Luoyang and he he encounters this, um, I think it's a, a, a beautiful princess who invites him to go with her and, you know, and her friends, there are, there are you know, going off partying and he, and he, um, you know, she, he goes, has, he feasts, she feasts him, um, she sleeps with him. And then in the middle of the night, he, um, wakes up and realizes that in fact, he's in this, um, in this tomb and her body is next to him and it's, it's rotted and fetid, uh, rotting and fetid. And, you know, he sort of barely manages to clam out, climb out of there and, um, and um, dies a few days later, um, and so that you know, in this sense, you in in these um, perhaps, and that's an, a, an earlier version. Um, you you have a, a very stark boundary between the. The, the human and the non-human. Well, she's not. She's. Uh, I guess in this case, she's a she's a dead person, so she's human. But um, you know, between the living human and the other, um, that once that boundary is is crossed, it becomes deadly. Um, and then in but but in the more complex versions of these stories or of the the, the this model um, that you just mentioned. You know, we we find more questioning of well, is that boundary really that um, that stark? Is is there um, is it more possible for um, for people or you know creatures on the other side of this this um, boundary between the living human and the other to cross over into the human realm and and um, and really um, participate in human society? And so, um, one example is. Um, you know, one, one of the examples that you just mentioned is the story of um, Shantu Chang, and Shantu Chang is um, also, you know, um, traveling at night, um, and you know, and this is a, a recurrent um, moment in these in these these stories that the moment of encounter is often uh, created by by travel, by the fact that that you know a human man is out of out of his element away from home he has to get somewhere else and he gets lost or it gets too late and he can't get where he's going um and that you know be, um, creates a sort of a diversion and so in in shun Shantu, Shantu he's you know caught in a snowstorm at night he takes um, refuge in um in, at, at this um home of this rustic cottage where there's a you know a man and a woman and a young daughter um and then the the daughter, though, is is strikingly beautiful, and she sort of indirectly, through um, through using uh, Shi Jing poems, suggests that he could ask her to um, or ask for her hand in marriage. So he does so, and um, and they are um, and her her parents agree, and you know they're married. Um, and then, um, and you know, live uh, very happily together for for several years, um, and so. Um, you know, I think that for readers, um, that you know, this formula is is common enough that at at this point, you know, that they might be expecting something more complicated to happen, and so realize that you know, this this woman can't quite be um, what she seems, even though the revelation of who she really is um, is is delayed over the, the space of, of several years, um, a happy marriage, the, um, the birth of children, 
Um, and then, you know, in this case, um, they uh, return to uh, the cottage where he had met her and she, you know, she finds a tiger skin in the corner. She throws the tiger skin over her over her shoulders and, you know, and turns turns into a tiger um, or at this point we realize she turns back into a tiger, uh, runs off into the woods and um, and is never seen again. Um, and but but I think what's interesting here in terms of what's happening in the story is that that she well one one thing that it is that it becomes her choice to to um, resume her animal form that she's not forced back into this um, in the, the, this other form not forced back onto the other other side of this boundary that exists um, but rather it you know she decides that you know being human is is apparently not worth it but and I but it that um, and you know the other way that this complicated this is complicated is that when she's in human form, um, you know precisely that she does play the role of the human wife or the human woman so perfectly, and that she is shown to be able to um, you know not only um, you know she can she performs all the tasks that a that a good human wife should and everything, um, but but you know she's she's also literate. She can compose poetry, um, and she does so um, seemingly better than her than her husband does. Um, that he um, when she writes a poem to him, he doesn't understand. Uh, he doesn't catch on to the veiled um, hints that she may not be what. Um, what he thinks she is, um, and so that you know, in um, in contrast to kind of that that again that stark boundary that we see in so many of the simpler stories, that the that a, a story like Shen Tu Chang is really asking, you know, you know, in effect, what does it mean to be human? You know, what is it? Is it sort of biology, or is it um, is it mastery of certain kind of cultural norms? And you know, at what point um, can 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 we draw that boundary, or really can we draw that boundary? Um, is it possible for someone who is not human to nonetheless um, um, behave so humanly that it really, really doesn't matter. Um, and then I think this, you know, goes back to the fact that it's also that it's her choice to to decide um, not to be human. That she she decides, uh, you know, fundamentally, it's it's she's the one who decides that fundamentally she's more tiger than human, and that she wants to go back to being a tiger. Um, and so, you know, again, that that perhaps even leads to questioning, you know, which is. Um, what what it's really worth being a human, you know, if if the tiger can have all of the pleasures of sort of human human society and and human um, culture, um, and then and then decide that they'd rather um, give it up and and go back to being a tiger. Thank you so much. So, so there's some super fascinating stuff going on in that chapter, and that's just one of many um, stories that you take us into um, that show the range of the uses and the kind of manipulation of the uses of this particular model. Now, the fourth chapter continues this by showing us a kind of 
progression in this formula. So this formula that took shape, as you put it, as a vehicle for lore and urban legend came to be used to challenge the assumptions of the formula itself, sort of in a way um, related to, but even more so than the uh, example that you just gave us, and then became a vehicle for literary play, for contrivance and wit. And this is some fabulous stuff. So the tales that are in chapter four are also um, tales that take the form of this kind of strange encounter adventure story, but they call attention explicitly to their artificiality. And the chapter looks at two types of these tales. In one type of the tales, there's um, an unlikely configuration, um, as the chapter puts it, of people who are brought together in a gathering that's witnessed by the traveler. And those people could be mythological figures, they could be ghosts, they could be historical figures, and there's an example um, that you take us through called Wedding on Mount Song. There's also tales that are riddling tales, so tales with riddles and puns and wordplay, um, which are awesome. And you, you bring us into um, two examples. One of them is Tung Ting Jun, where a guy makes friends with a broom and a fly. And then there's a story called Night Weirdness at Dongyang. Okay, um, so these are super fascinating stories. And I would love it if you could kind of, is there one of the stories in here, either the wedding or Tung Ting Jun or the night weirdness that you particularly like, that you'd like to maybe introduce for listeners, um, kind of in, in the spirit of explaining what's going on here with this riddling and this wordplay? Right. Um, I think that um, the, really the you know the um, most um, spectacular of the stories in this um, that I talk about in in the chapter is really the um, um, well what I translate as night, night weirdness at Dongyang, um, which is a story you know sort of in the same vein as um, the ones that I was just talking about in the sense that a traveler is um, a man is traveling late at night he um, is um, he, he actually just like Shantu Chung he gets uh, caught in a snowstorm and can't go further um, in this case he takes his um, um, he takes refuge in a a temple that he finds by the side of the road, um, and there's this, you know, old monk living there that that um, that um, you know offers him shelter, um, but you know says that unfortunately there's you know my, my fire went out or there's no light, so he can't actually see anything, um, or he can only see very dimly by the light of the moon occasionally. Um, but but he is um, you know he he's able to go in go inside um, and and take shelter from the snowstorm, and then in the course of the night that he spends there, um, you know, as he's chatting with a monk, um, that then um, several other guests arrive, um, people who the monk at the temple, uh, uh, friends of the, the, the monk at the temple um, who, you know, have come to, to pay him a visit on this snowy night. And so it sort of turns into this convivial gathering um, as more and more guests arrive. Um, and, you know, as is, um, um, well, as, as frequently happens in this, this story, the, these stories that are describing, um, um, socializing, you know, the, 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 the different figures are chatting, um, 
several of them compose poems, um, and they, you know, they, they generally have a very, very um, convivial night together. Um, and then all of a sudden, um, uh, you know, a nearby bell tolls dawn, and and um, you know, with with um, our our hero, our human hero in the story, has has um, been having so much fun that he doesn't realize how how time has passed. Um, and then, you know, but but with the tolling of dawn, the um, all of the other figures fall silent, um, and you know, and so this is the moment of realization that that you know they they weren't what they had seemed to be, um, and then you know, in contrast to the other other um, stories that I mentioned, where where the um, you know that they were. Where there's something disguised as a woman. You know, all of these figures are are disguised as as men. But he realizes, you know, so they've had this sort of um, this. It, it become a social encounter um, rather than a than a sexual encounter. Um, but he he then, you know, sort of in the course of leaving the temple, um, he's bemused. He's very bemused, and he sees um, various animals. Um, and he see there there are hedgehogs. There's a donkey, um, and there there there's a cat. There's a dog, um, and so then and, and there's not an explicit connection made between any of the the um, the animals that the that our hero sees and the um, the. The, the, the figures who he spent the night with, but the implication is that that these animals have have been the the well the the quote unquote people that he's been socializing with, and so you know and 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 then um, with that realization, which again you know I, I think that the astute reader would would probably have been clued into from the very beginning, you see, you know, you realize that all of their speech has been coded, um, that the, um, in, for example, the, you know, and I, um, I give this example at some length in the book that the donkey who is, um, you know, seems to be this kind of low level, um, clerk, um, complaining about how he's been toiling away in the office, um, for you know all his life and how exhausting he is that he's really complaining about how he has been a you know how hard the lot of of uh, a donkey owned by the government is that's you know constantly lugging things um, lugging things around on the road and you know constantly beaten and and um, forced to um, to, to go forward, um, and so that the you know in, in in many of the 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 figures of speech that seem very very plausible as uh, as descriptions of what you know the the travails of a uh, of a, a low level government official um, work. Um, just as well, literally, as a description of what you know of the donkey's travails, and so I think that the that you know what what's just so remarkable about this story is the the intricacy um, and the the uh, the mul- multiple multiple levels on which this kind of this um, punning and wordplay takes place, so that um, it, it it really is. 
um, woven so deftly into the fabric of the story that that we can read it sort of completely straight as a conversation among um, a, a bunch of men who happen to gather at a a temple. Um, while also, but, but while then, you know, the later realization that they that that that's not what they are, um, then it adds a whole new um, depth of understanding to their speech. And so, I mean, in in many ways, it comes back to some of the same issues as as I was just talking about with the with with Shun Tu Chung who who marries the tiger. That you know, you have these these animals who demonstrate you know that they are totally conversant with all of these elements of human culture that the um that, that there's an ox who you know he 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 writes a poem about himself that's you know that's filled with these with references to um to canonical texts to history to to human figures um and that that again you you can read as as a um uh, a human, um, you know, you can read in the voice of a human speaker, but that then um, also makes sense, in, or make it perhaps a, a different sort of sense, um, it read in the voice of an ox. But but because, but it's an ox that that knows all of this this you know that that knows all of this human culture that knows, um, you know, that's comfortable writing. Uh, uh, regulated poem and cramming all of these historical references into it. And so again, it's, you know, perhaps in a much more playful way than something like Shen Tu Chung, but is again, you know, um, exploring that boundary between um, human and other um, sort of on a philosophical level. But it's also just that the story itself is just such sheer fun because, I mean, we don't know who wrote it, um, but, but the, it must have, um, you know, you can sort of imagine the process of, of, um, of embedding all of these clues into the the poetry and the and the speech of these animals, um, and waiting for the you know the audience, the reader, to to try to decipher them. And you know, I I think there are annotated editions of this story, and I you know I don't know if if <laughs> if it all has been deciphered or if there are other sort of clues still. Um, you know, there there are references that the annotators clearly don't get, and so you know, it's it's sort of a, a puzzle that's been um, left for for posterity um, that that hasn't um, fully been unraveled, or at least um, it you know that the the unraveling is is incomplete at least for our time. Whether whether or not contemporary readers would have gotten it more. So I mean, I, th- I think that this just um, it really underscores also the the sheer um, fun that that um, writers were having with the tale form at this point as well. Thank you so much. And um, so this chapter also, I think, is a per- going to be of particular interest for readers and listeners who don't imagine themselves to be particularly interested in China, perhaps, per se, but are really interested in histories of and literatures of and with the non-human. There's a really, really interesting discussion in Chapter 4 of things that sing, right? The sort of singing and talking of the non-human, of objects. And I think that's, um, I just wanted to mark that as being of perhaps particular interest for this broader field that's emerged of studies of and with the non-human. Mm-hmm. 
So chapters five and six look at changing attitudes toward authorship in tale texts of the eighth and ninth centuries. And because we're sort of coming to the end of our time, we won't have time to talk about all of the really important things that are happening here, but I'll just kind of briefly summarize and then ask you a quick question. So in chapter five, we see that copiers of tales had some leeway regarding the extent to which they kept or changed details of the stories that they copied. And you give us three different examples or three different kinds of ways that collectors um, engaged with the work of previous writers in terms of how they retold the tales. Some of them um, keep the wording and anecdotes, but omit the framing and the indication of authorship of the previous story. Some of them significantly change the story, but credit the original source. And some of them change the story and omit reference to the source. And you take us through examples of that and talk about the various ways that um, these sort of variations are important for how we understand authorship and textuality in this period. Now, chapter six continues this analysis by focusing on the anthology Ewng, the only anthology of tales that's known to have been compiled in the tongue. And this chapter looks at the anthology as a way of getting at what you call the closing of texts and the increasing attention to tales as textual authored works in this period. So what I'd like to ask you is just to talk a little bit about that, and specifically the chapters arguing that a more textual and author-centered attitude emerges in the mid to late 9th century. So can you say a little bit about that and about why that's important for us to understand in order to understand the larger argument that the book is making? Well, I think that, you know, one thing is that it... um, you know, it, well, that, that as, as you said, it really does mark a change in attitudes towards this material that, um, and again, in the, well, um, as you just mentioned, that that sort of the norm at this point is, you know, just as um, with kind of um, just as many of the written tales that we have today um, are, um, are tied to oral storytelling um, and that that you know things would get would get changed in the course of that of that storytelling um that one one oral version of a tale would not be or of a story would not be precisely the same as as the next um you would change things you would you know um modify to suit your audience um and or you would if you were telling you know a story you'd heard from someone else um you would you would change it to make it the story that you want, um, and then also if you then go and write that write down that story, um, you know changes are sort of seamlessly introduced. That there's not this this assumption of fidelity to a source, um, and so you know in the fifth chapter, then I you know make make the point that this this same fluidity applies also to written texts, um, and you know and I think that that's something that um, remains the norm for. Uh, you know, f- f- for the entire period that I cover in in the story, and indeed, as you said, um, when we were talking about the introduction beyond it, that the that you know, for the most part, these are not uh, um, texts that you know any one any reader or any you know copyist felt. Well, I must. 
uh, I have to be absolutely faithful to what's on the the um, page in front of me. But rather, you know, readers would feel free to to um, draw upon things that they had read as well as um, things that they had heard if they you know, were trying to. Um, uh, if, if they decided to, to make their own collection of stories, um, and likewise, you know, even in in uh, um, copying something fairly intact, um, that that a uh, a transcriber might feel free to make, you know, even rather considerable uh, changes. Um, um, but at the same time, I think, well, you know, one thing is that at, at the same time, we, we do have all of these texts, right? And we have uh, um, uh, that, 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 so we have the evidence that they were being preserved, even if they were being changed in the preservation. Um, and so then in this sixth chapter, I, um, you know, I explore this uh, that idea that, that it is in the ninth century that we start seeing some of some readers, at least, um, seeing um, texts of of these these tales not just as um, as material for you know sort of their own entertainment and reuse, but as integral texts that that. Um, should be preserved um, more or less as they existed. So that instead of sort of rewriting and, and reframing a story, this um, anthologist Chen Han um, collected stories from um, many different writers, um, stories that had previously circulated um, independently and put them together in um, an anthology. Um, and I think that this is really significant both in sort of the, the recognition of this 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 tale form as something that was worth preserving in um, and and it's a sort of a, a recognition that the that these, um, th- these materials have worth and have the the um, um, you know are, are 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 something that that deserve collection and preservation as a body, um, and in the, at the same time, you know what it does is that it really um, it, it also to to some extent starts to codify. Or codify a, a genre in saying that these kind of disparate texts that had the, um, circulated in in um, you know w- without a context by bringing them together, it suggests that well, this is all the same, sort of the same kind of material. Um, it it forms a genre worth putting together and worth kind of reading as as a collection. Um, and so you know, I I think that that act becomes. Um, you know, really significant in the way then that this material is perceived in later centuries. That that especially you know even jumping ahead to the well um, to the 16th century and then even again even more to the the 20th century when this material gets um, re-examined um, um, by May Fourth intellectuals um, and um, and and really re-evaluated and and assigned a new value as kind of the the as this this turning point in the the uh, the history of ta- of um, you know Chinese narrative writing um, that that they are that that like Lu Xun and other 
May 4th writers are very much um, looking back at the picture of the of the the, the tale that that um, Chen Han, the compiler of this anthology, gives us, and and really um, making that their starting point. So it's had an enormous influence. I mean, there's sort of this canonization process that occurs in the ninth century through the act of this um, of of this um, anthologist who we really know almost nothing else about, um, but that then then becomes instrumental in the way that the material is perceived and um, and and interpreted in um, in, in um, much much more recent reevaluations of the of the history of Chinese literature. And I'm not sure if I answered your question at all. You totally did. No, you totally, thank you. And also you gave us um, some really interesting ways to look ahead to, although we won't have time to talk about it, some of the work that's done in the conclusion, right, where you really take us into an argument for thinking about these tales as a corpus and for thinking about um, some of the ways that Lucian um, understood uh, what was happening in terms of tales in the Tang Dynasty and how the study here both supports and also kind of complicates part of what he's saying. And also you talk a little bit in the, in, in the conclusion rather about what happens next. So we won't have time to talk about that, but I just want to kind of mark that for listeners. So there's a lot going on in the conclusion as well. So Sarah, we've come to the end of our hour and there's a ton of material in the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Um, but is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, Let's see. Well, I guess just very quickly, um, you know, to underscore the the notion that um, I I think that that, you know, getting back to Lu Xun, that sort of the way that this material has been presented um, in um, in in uh, 20th and even still in the 20th century presentations of the material is, you know, really seeing at it as the beginning of fiction in China. And so this notion of sort of the inventiveness and, and even in, in the, the, the creative author um, who who, you know, sits down and and um and creates his story um that my work is i think very much a res- a response to that um and that you know one of the the central things that um excuse me my reading of of more material suggests is that 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 really is you know it's a um that that what we're looking at is much, much more complicated. And so, you know, I guess I would um, <laughs> just want to offer a counter to, you know, what one sort of hears in the standard um, history of Chinese literature course um, saying that this is, you know, this material marks the beginning of, of fiction in China. I think that, you know, certainly that there are fictional elements, but that what's really important for us to keep in mind as, um, you know, as as readers in our own time, is that that distinction between fact and fiction has has not always been as controlling as we assume it is today. That it's it's really possible for it not to matter, um, and and I and I think that that that's what we have in, in um, with this much of this um, medieval material or late medieval material in particular. Thank you. So now that the book is out, um, what's next for you? What are you working on now? Um, well. I'm, um, to be honest, working um, most sort of on um, material that didn't make it into the book. Um, 
And uh, as much as I sort of hate to admit that and would like to be um, moving on to, to other things, but um, but I see this book as in many ways preliminary, sort of an assessment of, of the material as a whole that, that then can provide the foundation for, you know, all sorts of future work and, and not just by me, I hope, but, you know, at this point, including me, um, I think it does stand alone as a book, but that it, it also raises a lot of questions that I don't really um, have space to answer there. So um, right now I'm working on looking at a few um, mid and late ninth century tale collections um, to to explore that question of, you know, what writers are doing when they do move further and kind of more consistently beyond the, the model of, of collecting interesting information and oddities and um, towards... Um, you know, trying to, to form a more coherent collection um, that, that might carry the, the stamp of an individual writer. So, you know, what, what do writers do when they start to see this form of writing, um, um, the tale or, or even more specifically the tale collection as, as potentially literally, um, uh, sorry, literary, <laughs> um, potentially a vehicle um, for, for a form even of, of um, self-expression um, that would previously have been found more in, in poetry or prose. And I think that, the, so the stories that I'm, I'm looking at um, in this project are, are by and large, you know, not the ones that are the most acclaimed today, but I think it's where we see really the greatest innovation in, um, in sort of narrative writing at this time so that, that they did demonstrate a real interest in, in experimenting with the ways in which it, this, these kinds of narratives are presented and constructed. So, um, you know, some of the stuff that I, that I touch on very um, um, briefly in some of the chapters, um, you know, taking those threads and, um, and trying to, to, um, to follow them and, and, and see where they take me. Well, that sounds awesome, too. So best of luck with that work. Um, and thank you so much for talking with me about the book. It's really been a pleasure, and it's a fabulous book. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for um, taking the time to do this. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.